Good afternoon. My name's Lou Eisen, and this is Ring Talk. Today, we're going to discuss the on Canada Day weekend. Happy Canada Day, all my friends and family. Uh, we're going to discuss the epic January 22nd, 1973 fight in Kingston, Jamaica, between world heavyweight champion Joe Frazier and George Foreman, the challenger. Um, just as a sidebar for this fight, I was uh, in my room, in my house, and I was asleep. I was 13, and uh, my father comes in and wakes me up, you know, 11, 11, 30, 10 to 12, wake up, wake up. And I said, what, what? The Frazier Foreman fight's on TV. And I said, it's not on TV. It's closed circuit. Somebody made a mistake. And I came out, and it came out in the papers late, later here in Toronto that someone on the CTV network um, had actually flipped a switch while he was watching the fight from the studio because they had all these satellite dishes at their TV studio, and they got the fight, and it was broadcast across Canada. So I'm watching the fight. I come out and go, oh, this is great. And it wasn't great for Joe Frazier, but it, it was it was fun to watch. Um, you know what's interesting about Joe Frazier, George Foreman, and Muhammad Ali is they were all born in January within a week or two of each other, which is quite ironic. So Ali was born January 17th, 1942. Joe Frazier was born January 12th, 1944 in Beaufort, South Carolina, and George Foreman was born in uh, January 10th, on January 10th, 1949, in Houston, in the Fifth Ward, or as it was known throughout the country, the Bloody Fifth. Uh, they say Foreman grew up in the toughest area of the United States. So where, where Frazier grew up in Beaufort, uh, South Carolina, uh, family was impoverished. They were basically sharecroppers and made more money moonshining. And uh, Frazier hurt his left arm, uh, broke his left arm in an accident on the farm. And because of that, uh, it didn't heal properly. He didn't have the money to go see a doctor. It's not like Canada where you could today, not back then, where you could go see a doctor, you know, and say my arm's broken, they'll help you. Back then in the United States and Canada, you couldn't do that. So his arm healed, Frazier's arm healed, but it was in a permanent crook, which helped him when he threw his left hook. So Frazier didn't really start off wanting to be a boxer, neither did Foreman. And Frazier is growing up. He's got a large family. One of the sad things in his life was his eldest sister, uh, who was about 13, 14 years older, if not more, helped the mother, Joe's mother, when he was born, helped birth him. And she was also there the day when he was buried after he died. So Frazier had an, a fascinating life. He didn't get much education. He was a, he liked to beat up bullies in school. And he wasn't a stupid man by any means, as, as, um, um, as people, as Freddie Pacheco once said. But... Um, he, uh, yeah, he, he was just, um, I'm just dealing with some technical difficulties here. You're asking me if my computer went to sleep, which it didn't. My computer's fine right now. Um, so 
Frazier's growing up there. He's got a large family. He's doing moonshining. He was a father at 16, father to son. He's getting into a lot of trouble. And by his own admission, he was a scambooga, which is a word he made up. And Frazier moved to New York to be with his older brother and sister-in-law. And he made a living there with some friends by stealing cars and parts of cars and selling them to use car lots. And uh, his brother said, you know, you're getting known around town. You're going to get hurt. Might as well move to Philadelphia. I know some people there. And he did. But, you know, Frazier was listed as 5'11". He wasn't really 5'11". Frazier was maybe 5'10 on his tiptoes. But by the time he got to Philadelphia, he was 255, 260 pounds. He was fat. And Frazier had high blood pressure and diabetes. So to be that fat with those afflictions, you know, can be life-threatening. So Frazier got into a gym to work his uh, weight, weight off, you know, to get his weight down. And he got a job in a kosher slaughterhouse. And he would go to the gym. And in this gym, it was owned by his future trainer, manager, Yank Durham. And the thing about this gym was, Yank Durham, who ran it, been looking for great fighters for years and never found one. You could open a gym in a city, a major city anywhere in the world, and the odds of you finding a world champion walking into your gym as a young boy and training him to a title are a billion to one. But Frazier got in the gym. He started to train. He was dedicated. He would get up before he had to go to work, and then he would jog and run to lose the weight, and he would do it after work. So... Frazier started to spar with some of the other heavyweights. And these were guys that were experienced fighters who had amateur pedigrees. And he was knocking them out. They would hit him. It, it had no effect on him. So Yank Durham polished off, you know, he polished the rough edges. Frazier entered the Olympics in 1964. And he went and fought uh, uh, in the trials Buster Mathis, who later became a champion, not a champion, excuse me, a professional fighter. But Mathis had the same problem. Mathis, you know, was like 6'3", 350 pounds, uh, high blood pressure, diabetic, lost weight, beat Frazier in the trials, and then Frazier was given a chance in a rematch, which he, he, most people who were there thought he won, lost that. Decision went against him, I won't say he lost. And so what happened was with uh, Frazier, he was so despondent, he said, well, that's it with boxing. That was just another experiment in his life. And he gets a call a day or two later saying that you're on the U.S. Olympic team as the heavyweight challenger. And he said, what happened? Mathis broke his thumb when he hit Frazier in the head. And I've had a broken thumb from playing hardball. A broken thumb will take four, five, six months to heal, and it'll be a year before you get full use back. So Mathis was done. So Frazier goes to the Olympics, and he wins the gold medal in 1964. And the thing about Frazier, of course, was he broke his thumb in the Olympics, but he didn't tell anyone, because if he had told someone, they would have not let him fight, and he needed the gold medal. So Frazier goes on, wins the gold medal, gets back home, and you know he had to get a collection of from all these different people in Philadelphia to get him enough money to fly to Tokyo for the 64 Olympics. And... He was broke when he got home. He's still working at the slaughterhouse, but he's got no money. He's having more and more children, and he's frustrated. I have a gold medal, and no one cares. He wants to turn pro. He does turn pro, and then all these businessmen get together. Uh, a friend of his helped get the Cloverlay Group together, and the Cloverlay Group ended up donating. There were 25, 30 people or more 
donating various sums of money for a percentage of Frazier, even Larry Merchant, the famous writer and HBO boxing analyst, great guy, uh, donated or gave money for a percentage. And this helped launch Frazier's career. George Foreman was born in 1949 in Houston from a large family. And Foreman grew up, he wasn't able to read or write. And one day he said after his mother had left for school, he left the house to go, or mother left for work. He left the house to go to school and no one saw him. So he snuck back in through a window and went back to sleep. His sister, older sister walked by his room and saw him and said, well, it doesn't matter. We're all losers. We're not going anywhere anyways. So you go back to sleep. Nobody cares. And that really upset him. So Frazier was, Foreman was very big, excuse me, as a kid. He physically strong. He, he, as he said, by his own admission, he was a thief, you know, a bully, and going in the wrong direction. And he saw an ad one day for the Job Corps. And he joined the Job Corps. And the Job Corps was a program instituted by Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president, that would take disadvantaged youth like Foreman take them to a pastoral, a pastoral setting, I think this was in Oregon, and help give them actual working skills that they, when they left, they could actually go and get a job. And when Foreman got there, he was learning different things, but the most important thing he told me was he learned to read. And he said that he was unable to read up until his early teenage years. And he said it was like living in darkness. And I said to him, I can relate to that because, because of my peripatetic childhood. So I moved around a lot, lost my, my mother died young. So I didn't learn to read until I was around nine years old. And I understood what he meant. So learning to read took him, he said, from a dark room into a light room full of possibilities. And once Foreman learned to read, he, his thirst for learning never stopped. So George, George is still angry while well, he's there. He's still getting into fights. And they got a guy who worked there named Doc Brodus. He became his one of his trainers for life. And Brodus, you know, took him into the gym, helped him learn to box. He'd only been at it a couple of weeks. And Brodus said, I've never seen anyone with the unbelievable raw power that um that you have. And uh Kerrig eighty seven says, Yeah, I wouldn't want to be punched by either of them. Um, this, you know, I asked George Chevallo that. What, who had the harder punch? You have to remember, Frazier broke Chevallo's uh, orbital bone, his right orbital bone, and Foreman stopped him in three rounds. So he said, Frazier was like getting hit by a Corvette at 100 miles an hour. Foreman felt like you getting whacked by a Mack truck at 65 miles an hour. Either way, it hurts. He said, Foreman hit him so hard, the hair on his toes hurt. So... So Foreman's doing, having an amateur career, a nascent amateur career. He's starting off. He's doing well. And they enter him in the Olympics. He hasn't, you know, a lot of the pros in the Olympics back then, or most of them were, excuse me, a lot of the amateurs were pros, especially from the Iron Curtain. These are guys well into their 30s. They'd had three or 400 amateur fights. They were professionals, but because they worked in commune trees and lived there, you know, they were lifetime athletes and they had the best training year-round. So Foreman only had a couple months to train. He hadn't been boxing that long. His amateur record was like two. So 
he goes to the Olympics and he, he just, you know, the first fight he wins by decision. This is 68 in Mexico City. This is right during the height of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, where Carlos and Edwards, you know, put up their right hands with the black glove on it and a black power salute. And what's interesting when I spoke to George is, you know, he's fighting after the first fight, he wins by decision, but the next three, they're all knockouts. And what happens is, you know, you got these very confident, I wouldn't say overconfident, communist-based fighters fighting George, and they have all this experience, and he's just, they figure he's this, this big black kid from the States, he's 6'3". He's strong, okay, but he doesn't really have much skill, he doesn't know the technical side. And their fight starts, and he comes out, and first punch, he hits him with a jab, breaks their nose, now there's blood gushing from his nose, hits him with another shot, you know, and 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 fractures a bone in their cheekbone, knocks their teeth out, and then a, a, their, his third or fourth shot breaks a couple of ribs, and these guys are like, I feel like I'm being attacked by a gang. I've never been hit like that before. And he just bludgeoned them. And then Jonas Sapoulis, uh, the last guy, the, you just see on the tape, his face is a mask of gore. Foreman just keeps teeing off on him. And people said, well, Foreman is a bit slow. His punches aren't always straight, but it didn't matter. If he could land it, it was like getting hit with a tree trunk. And he wins the gold medal. And what upset a lot of people was he took an American flag and he waved it around the ring. And a lot of people liked it. And a lot of people did it. And they called him, a, some people called him a traitor. But he didn't look at it politically. He's not a political person. He just, he, he just said that, you know, I wanted people to know that I was from a country that cared about me, that gave a damn, and I was the American, so people watching would know, and I was the one that won the gold medal. So Ali, then Frazier, then Foreman, all gold medalists, except Ali won the light heavyweight gold medal in the 1960 Olympics. So Frazier turns pro after the Olympics, and he had fights fighting not really the best quality competition, and uh, one of his first big fights, if not his first big fight, was against Oscar Bonavina, Ringo, who died at the age of 33 uh, after being shot to death at a chicken ranch, a whorehouse in Las Vegas, where prostitution is legal because he slept with the owner's wife. And Bonavina uh, was not the brightest guy. It's Argentinian uh, Oscar Bonavina, and it wasn't that big. It was the same size as Frazier. And they fought, and he dropped Frazier. He dropped him twice in the fight. And he had, you know, if he dropped him one more time in that round, they would have stopped the fight. But Frazier staged a furious, a furious rally, and came, and they gave him the decision. Bonavina couldn't believe it. Some of the fans booed. They fought again a while later, and Frazier won a more decisive decision. And then his next big fight was 67 against the tough Canadian champion, George Trevallo, who at that time challenged twice for the world title. And George Chavallo told me that Frazier was the toughest guy he ever fought. Not in terms of tough and that strong, but tough in terms of difficult. But he said because George is six feet. And because Frazier was shorter and bobbing and weaving and moving, George said it was very difficult to time him. He said it was different with Ali because I didn't go for Muhammad Ted. I wasn't going to hit it anyways. I went for his body, which was always there. But Frazier, he said, it was just very difficult to get to him. And around the end of the second round, he caught Frazier with a good left hook. Frazier 
sort of his knee buckled for maybe a second, but then he recovered and then the bell rang. And then in the next round, he comes out, hits George of that patent that left hook, breaks his old bone. And the interesting thing about that is uh, George, they fixed it in New York in the hospital and George thought his eye had popped out, but this surgery was revolutionary in New York at the time. They didn't have that surgery yet in Toronto where George is from. So if George had had the surgery in Toronto for a broken orbital bone, he would have lost the eye. Frazier went and visited him in the hospital. Joe Frazier was Chevalier's best friend in boxing and vice versa. They really liked each other, became very, very close friends, and they spoke every week. The thing is, you know, that uh, to George and to Joe, it was boxing. It was business, not personal. Now, Frazier is doing well. At this time, Muhammad Ali, because he wouldn't go into the uh, army to fight in the war in Vietnam, and he never said that. What he said was, if you can show me one African-American, one black person who voted in the last federal election in my home state of Kentucky, one black person and li who lived to tell about it, then I will join the army today and fight in Vietnam. And the government couldn't do that. Also, Ali was offered a deal where he wouldn't have to fight. He could just sit in an office and sign autographed pictures, but he didn't want to contribute to the war effort against people that he thought did not need, you know, Americans didn't need to be in this war. And he was correct in essence. So, because the war changed nothing at all about the political status of Vietnam. So what happened is Ali has his title taken away in 67 after the Zora Foley fight. All these boxing organizations, the New York State Athletic Commission and the WBA, you know, all of them, criminal WBC, criminal organizations, that have convicted criminals in their employ withdraw the recognition of Ali. So they have a tournament to see who's going to replace Ali. Frazier won't enter the tournament because his trainer, smartly Yank Durham, says he's the best fighter there is. Why should he enter a tournament? Let him fight the winner. The winner of the tournament is Jimmy Ellis, Ali's best friend and sparring partner. When people say Muhammad Ali was the greatest creation of Angelo Dundee, most people would say it's Jimmy Ellis because he was an above average middleweight whom Angelo Dundee turned to the world heavyweight champion, which is quite an, excuse me, quite an accomplishment. So you have um, Jimmy Ellis fighting Joe Frazier for recognition as the, from the New York State Athletic Commission for the world heavyweight title. And Frazier just destroys him. 1970, he knocks him down, knocks him out. You know, after he knocked him down a second time, Angelo stopped the fight after the fifth round and Ellis is getting up when the bell rings and Frazier or Angelo says, you can't come out, you're done. He said, no, 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 I'll get him. He hasn't touched me yet. And he said, you've been down several times. You were down twice in the last round. I mean, Ellis was severely concussed. So, Frazier is now the champion, and now there's a competition to get Ali back, or not a competition, but there's a movement, excuse me, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, to get Ali back. Ali gets his license, he beats Jerry Quarry, and then he beats Oscar Bonavina, and then he fights Frazier. Frazier wins the fight. But Frazier took more damage in that fight than George Form or Muhammad Ali did. He ended up being in the hospital for a while, and Frazier had high blood pressure, and he also had diabetes. The other thing about Frazier, too, you have to remember, is he fought most of his career blind in his left eye. 
It wasn't from a boxing injury. It was just because of his high blood pressure and diabetes. He had minimal sight in his right eye, but he had almost no sight. And by, by 72, you would say 73, he was literally blind in the left eye. Eventually, he had cataract surgery, and it was fixed, but not at that time. So he, after he beats Ali, he doesn't fight for a bit, and then he has a couple of setups. One is against a guy named Dave Ziggy Ziglowitz, which was a 69-second fight, a guy who wasn't ranked in the top 75 in the world, and Frazier beats him in a minute and nine seconds. Then he fights the, uh, the guy from Council Bluffs, Iowa, Ron Stander, who was the Council Bluffs butcher, and Frazier butchered him, beats him in five rounds. And after the fight, Stander's wife said, well, that's what happens when you put raw hamburger in with filet mignon. So he wasn't really prepared to fight Foreman, and he didn't take Foreman seriously. He thought Foreman would be a pushover. He looked at him, and he said he throws wide punches around. He's easy to hit. He doesn't look that. And Frazier didn't really train that hard for the fight. He should have, but he didn't. And so at that point, Foreman is the mandatory number one contender for the fight, for the title fight. Foreman had been going through all these uh, fighters up to fighting Frazier. His biggest wins were over Gregorio uh, Peralta, and then he beat Chevallo in the Madison Square Garden, where he landed 27 consecutive shots. Chevallo was still standing and looked at the referee and said, why are you stopping it? But you have to punch back. And the referee stopped it. Foreman was the winner. And Foreman kept, you know, he kept winning, and he got the title shot in Kingston, Jamaica. And, of course, Don King, the famous story was, came to the stadium with Joe Frazier, but left with the winner, um, George Foreman, which was what Don King always did, except when Ali beat Foreman and when he went to join Ali. And you can see on the tape, Ali turns and tells him off and King is shocked. So there they are in Jamaica. And, you know, the week, a couple of weeks before the fight, Frazier's at poolside, eating a steak, having a beer, you know, relaxing with his friends. Foreman's up early every day running 10, 15 miles and training hard. And people are saying to Joe Frazier, this guy's, He's for real. He's taking it serious. He's in shape. And Frazier just, nah, this guy's got nothing. He's just a, you know, souped up amateur. And people, you know, after Frazier was supposedly going to beat Foreman, they were going to have a big fight, you know, second fight with Ali. And the thing is, it happened, but of course, Frazier was no longer champ. First fight, they split 5 million. This fight, they would have split 10 or 15 million, but because he lost, they didn't. So they get in the ring. Foreman's hero in boxing, excuse me, was Sonny Liston. He had trained for a bit with Sonny Liston, and he he, he liked Liston. He and he was doing Liston. He was, and by that I mean he was imitating Liston in the ring. That's where the stare down comes from. And, and Liston said, "You would just look into the man's soul and steal his heart, and his courage, and his soul." And so Foreman is there, and you see the disparity in height. You have. Frazier is 5'10", Foreman is 6'3 and a half. Foreman comes in at 215, 220. Frazier's, I think, 212. His ideal weight was 204. And Foreman's just giving him the meanest Sonny Liston look you can give at the stare now. Arthur McCanny had been brought in from the States to referee. And this, you know, several writers beforehand, notably uh, the New York Daily News, Red Smith, 
said to Howard Cosell, this is a mismatch. Foreman's going to destroy him, if not take his life. He said, Frazier's not ready for this. He's not prepared. He hasn't trained well. And he was right. And he just said that Foreman's too big, too strong, and too quick. Now, in similar fashion to the second Lewis Schmeling fight, there was revisionist history that, you know, Schmeling didn't land a punch. It's not true. Schmeling landed several right hands, good ones, on Joe Lewis early, but Lewis took him. He was zoned in. Same with Foreman. When you watch the fight, Frazier did land some big left hooks and turn Foreman's head around, but didn't have any effect on him. He just kept coming forward. Joe Frazier was a southpaw. He was a converted orthodox fighter because if you're a southpaw and you want to use your left hand more, if you're throwing it from the southpaw stance, you got to throw it across your body, which is going to telegraph it. Him, unless you know how to hide it with your jab and turn your body on an angle. Turning into an orthodox fighter meant his left hand was closer to his opponent. And he landed, you know, three, four, five good left hooks on Foreman. And Foreman's head went back, but did nothing. He just kept coming forward. So there's two calls on the fight, Don Dunphy and Howard Cosell. And Cosell had the famous call, of course, down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. And the fight begins, and, you know, Foreman is bigger than him, and Frazier like all fighters who fight in that style, coming forward and being aggressive, can't fight backing up. And Foreman had difficulty after fighting backing up. So Frazier, Foreman is pushing Frazier back. Frazier tries to crowd him because Yank Durham told him, you got to get in and you got to get low. You got to get low and come in under his reach and work him to the body and then work upstairs. And he gets... He crouches and gets in there, but Foreman always pushes him back. In Foreman's corner is Dick Sadler, Dick Sadler's cousin, Sandy Sadler, the great Sandy Sadler, former world featherweight champion, along with Doc Brodus, who was his Olympic uh, mentor and who discovered him, and the great Archie Moore, the greatest knockout artist and leg heavyweight champion of all time. Archie Moore said to him, underneath, George. He kept screaming, underneath. In other words... Don't just stand there and throw, you can throw the jab, but don't try to hook with him because he's just going to duck under it. Come with the uppercut. So Foreman would fake a hook and then hit him with the uppercut. And it worked perfectly. And, you know, Foreman goes down, or Frazier goes down, and he didn't just go down. He, Foreman hit him with a rocket. And Frazier goes down, he gets up. He got up all six times. And He's, you know, wandering around the ring. Arthur McCanty looks at him, waves him together. Foreman hits him again. Frazier goes down again. And there's only 29 seconds left in the round. And Frazier gets up. Well, he'll make the round. And with a few seconds left, he hit him with an uppercut. And Frazier's whole body collapsed. Just like a lawn chair, if you drop it. Just, or an accordion, just bang onto the mat. And after he collapses, the round ends. He's still got to get up, get up. And he gets up, and Yank Durham has to hold him up while they put the stool in the ring. And Yank Durham's talking to him and telling him what to do, but Frazier's out. I mean, he's heavily concussed at this point. Foreman's corner, he's very calm, and Archie Moore just says, keep doing what you're doing. Keep hitting him with the uppercuts. He bobs and weaves and comes forward. That's all he knows how to do. So you get under that. Okay, you can hit him with that jab, that pole-axing jab, keep moving back, and when he comes forward, this is momentum again.
drop that right up. Yes. So second, and he referred to Pacheco do color conversation at Howard. Informants just bombing him, and Angel starts yelling, "Stop the fight! Stop the fight!" And he—it's he, not Frazier wins, so he a lot of money. It's—he's—he's—I'm still gonna die. He's gonna lose his. This isn't a match. This is a beatdown in the alley by a gang, and Foreman hits him again, and Frazier goes down, and just. The incredible power and the sound that it makes when Foreman's gloves are hitting him, even the shots that don't knock him, pounding his head and hitting him in the neck and hitting him in the body. And Frazier's being moved five, six, seven feet by each punch. I mean, this is a phenomenal beatdown. And Frazier goes down for the fourth time. He gets up, staggers around. Arthur McCanny wipes his gloves, waves him on. Foreman comes in again. You know, and Foreman looks at the corner and yells, stop the fight. I don't want to kill the man. And he knocks him down a fifth time. And Frazier wants to staggers around the ring. McCanny wipes the gloves off. And Foreman looks at him and says, do I have to kill him? What are you doing? And he knocks him down for the last time. And the shot he hit him with, you know, the right hand. This is unbelievable when you it. It lifted Frazier off the canvas. Literally. And then he falls on all fours. And that's when Arthur McCanny stopped the fight. And one said, watching that sixth and final knockdown was like watching a fire hydrant being ripped out of the pavement. It, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, there'd never been a beating like that. And Frazier said, yeah, I got up all six times. But Angelo Dundee told me this action. That's what some fighters do. Frazier was so concussed, he didn't have the presence of mind to stay there and take a nine count. But it would have made no difference because that first knockdown rattled his brains. And now Frazier was done. I mean, he admitted after I took him too lightly. I didn't train hard enough. And, you know, Frazier, like Foreman, had come from extreme, extreme poverty. And now, you know, when you're not the champion anymore, your purses go down. He had to rematch in 74 against Ali and Ali won, but he didn't have the same fire he had before. And Frazier continues to fight. He beats Joe Bugner, but he was never really in contention again. People often ask, why didn't he fight Norton? Because they were best friends. He helped Norton out a lot in his career. Foreman uh, goes on to a glorious career. He defends the title against a no-hoper named Joe King Roman. And then he has... You know, the October 8th, 1974 disaster against Muhammad Ali. And Ali had the great comment, you know, at the press conference. He said, everyone's scared that I'm going to get murdered by George Foreman. He said, but it's mostly white people that are scared, white reporters, because you don't understand one fundamental principle, which is, he said, black people aren't afraid of black people the way white people are afraid of black people. He said to a white guy, George Foreman's this big, bad, ugly monster. But to me, a black man, and he's just another guy from the ghetto. And he said, I've never seen him in late rounds in a fight. He never had to go late rounds. I want to see what happens when his parachute doesn't open. So he started to lodge a psychological war against Foreman. And Ali, when they fought in Zaire, the Belgian Congo, he's fighting Foreman. And 
he wasn't sure how to go about it, so he called George Chevallo and asked him what he thought about Foreman. And Chevallo said, even though he stopped me, and I thought it should not have been stopped, he was starting to breathe heavy in the first round. If you can get uh, in the third round, if you can get him to expend his energy, you'll have a chance in the later rounds. And then he spoke to Customato, the great Customato, Mike Tyson's trainer, trainer Floyd Patterson, and Jose Torres, the light heavyweight champ. And D'Amato had been around boxing a long time too. And he said, listen, you got to make him respect you. So when that bell rings, the first thing you do is you go out and you throw an overhand right. And the reason you throw an overhand right is it's a sucker punch. You're throwing it across your body. And you're saying to your opponent, you're so unskilled that I could throw this sucker punch and still land it. And Ali did. And Foreman wasn't expecting that. Before the fight, Foreman was training and training and he was in good shape. Got a cut from the sparring partner, got had an elbow. And had to take a month off to let it heal. But that month off gave Muhammad Ali new life because he trained for a lot longer uh, than he was originally planning to. And he got more acclimated. Foreman got in the ring, and everyone had said to Foreman, up to and including fight day, whatever you do, you can beat Ali, just don't kill him. That's what everyone was afraid of. And Ali fought him, and after the first round, Ali looked at him and thought, you know, this is my big nightmare now. What am I going to do? I can't run like I wanted to because my legs aren't there, and it's so hot, and Foreman is so much better than everyone told me. They lied to me. He, he's really a very good technical fighter and knows how to cut the ring off. So he laid on the ropes, and Foreman punched himself out, and Ali stopped him in the eighth round. Foreman was furious at that because he'd never lost before as a professional, and only twice, barely, as an amateur. So Foreman continues to fight. You know, he has the Foreman versus five in Toronto. He had the great fight with uh, Ron Lyle in Las Vegas, which my father said it was like watching two grizzly bears meet in the forest and go at each other. There was something like five knockdowns. They, you know, Foreman got dropped, I think, twice. Lau got dropped the uh, three times in the last knockdown in the fifth round, where Howard Crossell once again said, this time it may be over. This time it may be over. And Ron Lyle, who has privileged to meet at the Boxing Hall of Fame, Ken Stoda, said, I've never been hit like that before. And Hollyfield said the same thing years later in George's comeback. He said, I'd never been hit like that. I thought he knocked my teeth out. And so Foreman's winning these fights. You know, he beats Scott Ledoux. And then he fights Jimmy Young in 1977. And Young was a real slick, skilled technician. They fought in Puerto Rico. It was brutally hot. Young drops Foreman. Foreman loses the decision, goes to the dressing room. He's severely dehydrated. He's suffering from heat stroke. And then that's when he said he had his religious... Conversion, he was born again, became a born-again Christian and a minister. And, you know, he got up naked from the table. Heal me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. And Foreman dropped out of boxing for 10 years and became a preacher. He, enti- he changed his entire outlook and perspective on life. He didn't want to be that mean bully anymore. George Chevallo said when he met him before their fight in 67 or 68, he's 68, 60, no, my mistake. 1970. So they meet, and Foreman, he said at the press conference, was playing the piano. He said he was very friendly and joking. But once the cameras came on, you know, he got that stern appearance again. So Foreman drops out for 10 years. The real reason he dropped out, he wanted to be a preacher, but he had signed a 10-year 
personal services contract in 1977 with Don King at gunpoint and didn't want to go through with that anymore. So he dropped out. When he came back, you know, he had a lawyer and the lawyer asked Don King if you still want an option on him. And they said, how much does he weigh? That's what Don King asked. And he weighed about, I don't know, 400 pounds at that point. And King said he'll have a heart attack before he has a victory. And George kept fighting and people didn't take it seriously until he beat Jerry Cooney. And Foreman got his weight down to 260. He got it down to around 230 at one point, but that was too light for him, he felt. And he, he challenged for the title against Totally Phil. He didn't win. Uh, he lost to Shannon Briggs, which I thought he won. And he lost to Tommy Morrison. He was going to get one more chance. At this point, uh, Archie Moore, because of uh, the dementia he was suffering, was not able to work George's corner. So they replaced him with Angelo Dundee. And when I spoke with Angelo before the Michael Moore fight, he, you know, Angelo said he's going to knock Moore out because Moore is a puffed up light heavyweight. Uh, he's a southpaw. George has fought a lot of southpaws. It's not going to bother him. Foreman himself told Jim Lampley about 10 months, 10 months or less before the fight, I'll knock him out in the later rounds. Watch. And Foreman's plan was he was going to keep throwing that awkward left hand of his to hit Moore. And the more he did it, the more often he threw it, Michael Moore kept moving to his left away from George's left, right into the path of that right hand that could drop an elephant. And during the fight, the great Teddy Atlas, his trainer, said to Michael Moore, don't do that. He's sucking you in. He's trying to get you to walk into a right hand. And Moore said, I, know, I can knock him out. doesn't matter. And he said, it does matter. He's in his 40s, but he still punches, you know, like a Mack truck. Don't engage. And he kept engaging. And he kept, he was so much quicker. And seventh round, eighth round, ninth round, Angelo Dundee, said, we're running out of rounds. And George got angry. He said, Angelo, I can't win on points. That's not the idea. I can never win on points. I have to knock him out. And, of course, you go into the 10th round, and George had been knocking him back with that pull-axing jab of his, but he shortened it up, jabs him, hits him with the right hand, and he noticed Moore's eyes roll. He's hurt, hits him with another jab, another straight right, and Moore goes down. And they could have counted to 500. Moore was out. Foreman is once again the undisputed heavyweight champion in the world, and no one was happier for him, of course, than Bob Arum and Muhammad Ali. At that point, Foreman, who's extremely bright, was making a fortune, and still makes a fortune, off the George Foreman, off breeding a championship German Shepherds. He made a fortune. A NASCAR team, I mean, he owns a he has a clothing line, smart businessman. Joe Frazier uh, fought Joe Bugner, as I said, and he, he fought a couple of times and then retired, came back to fight a guy named Jumbo Cummings, I think around 1980, I think it was. And um, he got a disputed draw, though he lost a fight. Cummings was an ex-convict. He wasn't really a boxer. He had very little experience. Joe retired and trained other fighters, most notably his son, Marvis, and Marvis was moved along too quick by Joe. He was worn by George Benton and, and, and Eddie Futch, who had moved in to train um, Joe Frazier when Frazier had the thriller in Manila uh, with uh, Muhammad Ali. Yank Durham had died, and that was a big loss to Joe because Joe looked at Yank Durham as a parent. 
as a father figure. And so Joe goes into the fight with Ali, can't see out of left eye, very limited vision in his right eye, but he hangs in there for 14 rounds. And the fight is stopped by Eddie Futch, and Frazier disagreed with him and was angry at him for years, but then years later forgave him and said, you were right. You did the right thing. Frazier was willing to die that night to beat Ali. There was a lot of BS about that fight where they said people, Boogaloo Watts, uh, a middleweight from Philadelphia, was standing behind Ali in his corner, and Ali wanted to quit, but that never happened. I spoke with British writer Hugh McElmany, and he said, I sat less than five feet from the Ali corner. I never heard him, and I could hear everything he said. And Angela Dundee said, and I never heard him once say, I want to quit. He did say, I'm exhausted, and I'll keep fighting till I collapse. But he never said, I quit. Frazier loses that fight, and that's probably the, the most heart and courage that he, you know, any fighter has ever shown in their life. It was just incredible. And Frazier, after that fight, is just, it took everything out of him. Uh, he retires from the sport, as I said, trains his son, Marvis. Marvis gets a title fight. Larry Holmes gets knocked out in one round. He gets him a fight with Mike Tyson, who knocks him out in 30 seconds. Marvis smartly retires and becomes a preacher. Joe's money is gone. He left Clover Lake, and he started looking after his own finances. And that was a mistake, because when he let, let, looked after his own finances, he didn't do his taxes. And Clovelet had looked after all of that for him and had smart investments for him. And Joe just wasn't trained in that. This is a guy that made tens of millions of dollars. And when he died, it was worth less than 100 grand. So Frazier tried a whole bunch of different things. He made money on the celebrity guest speaking circuit. He, he, um, he also on the memorabilia circuit, he did very well. And uh, I met him in the early 90s in Ajax, Ontario, Canada, at a bar called Jocks, which my friend Tony Pallera owned. I walked in and I said to Tony, that looks like Joe Frazier at the bar. And he said, that is Joe Frazier at the bar. And I spoke to him for a couple of minutes and I said, have you been to Canada? And he said, many times I come up to see George, you know, George Chevallo, his best friend. I love George. We're brothers by different mothers. And so I spoke to him for a bit and I said, you know, it's an honor to meet you. And, he, and um, uh, it, it was interesting because um, a lot of times when you ask him a question, he would say, well, the answer's there, don't you think? You know, like, why are you asking me such a question? You already know the answer to that. But I didn't bring up Ali, and I didn't bring up Foreman or whatever. I just said it's an honor to have you here, and I uh, hope you have, you know, enjoy the rest of your trip. Foreman fought and, and then when he had the title and beat Axel Schultz. And eventually, they withdrew recognition of his uh, title claim, and he retired after his mother passed away, which he always said he would, and looked after his investments. And Foreman has all of his faculties till this day. Joe Frazier, sadly, passed away uh, from liver cancer on November 7th in 2011, and Ali was at the funeral, and... Um, and Foreman didn't go. He said he wanted to give the family space, but he was speaking to Joe. The touching story about that, of course, is George Chevallo was out west in Western Canada giving an anti-drug speech at a high school when he got a message when he was on stage saying, Joe Frazier is in a coma. You know, he's very ill. And Joe called him, or George called him and left a message for him, please hang on, I'll be there within, within a day. And he 
stopped the tour. He flew down to New York directly from Alberta. And he got to the hospice where Fraser was, but he missed him by about five minutes. And it broke George's heart because he loved Joe. And uh, Fraser was 67. His family was by his side uh, when he passed away. Fraser endured a lot of criticism during his career because he was friends with the mayor and former uh, police chief, Frank Rizzo, who was white and who was really right-wing and a bigot. But Frazier didn't see color. He didn't see black or white. He just saw, are you a good person or you a bad person? Or are you good to me or do you not treat me well? And if you treated him well, he treated you well. And Ali sort of had, I don't say a smarter view, but he had a different view than Joe Frazier. Uh, in the end, in the end, I mean, a lot of people kept saying that they never reconciled. and. When Ali had the Parkinson's and you would see him shaking like this, Frazier would always say to people and say publicly, I did that to him. He called him the butterfly. And when Ali lit the Olympic torch in Atlanta, Frazier said on TV, I hope he falls into the cauldron. And Frazier's son, Marvis, and his family members would say, don't say that about Muhammad. That's a long time ago, Dad. Let it rest. You know, Ali had really gone after him. And Frazier had said to him, you know, my kids are getting attacked in school when you call me in a gorilla and an Uncle Tom. But Ali wouldn't stop. Ali thought he was promoting the fight. And when you look at it from an economic standpoint, Frazier was really poor. He was really poor. Foreman used to say, we were so poor, we weren't poor, we were poor. We couldn't afford the last O&R. Ali was from the black middle class in Kentucky. He actually was the only one of them. He had a roof over his head his own room with his brother, and indoor plumbing. Frazier didn't have indoor plumbing till he moved to New York when he was 17 years old. He didn't know what that was. So around 2004, before the NBA All-Star Game, Lonnie Ali contacted the Frazier family, and they met. And they got together, and they hugged, and they both cried, and they prayed. And Marvis, who was an ordained minister, was going to wear it, but Joe Frazier said, I have it. And he grabbed Muhammad's hand, held it with both his hands, and he just said, God, please heal this man who's done so much good for the world and his people. And they talked for a bit, and then they had dinner. And during dinner, Ali was playful and said, Gorilla, I'm going to get you again. And Frazier just said, Muhammad, do we have to do this again? You know how much that hurts me. And Muhammad just you know, held his hand up, and they sat together. They sat together at the at the All-Star game and they spoke and they got a long standing ovation. And, you know, Ali was really upset when Frazier died. His daughter, Hannah, told me that, uh, you know, when, when Ali learned the extent of how much Frazier felt hurt in later years by what Ali had said, he said that her father, Mom, just started to cry. He said, I didn't want to hurt him. I was just trying to hype the fight. But... Frazier took it personally because you have to remember, Joe Frazier supported Muhammad Ali when Ali was in exile. He paid for the legal bills. He paid to send Ali's kids to private schools, Muslim schools. You know, he paid the mortgage for Ali. He paid for groceries. And then to have Ali treat him like that was really, you know, was beyond the pale in Frazier's point of view and a lot of people's point of view. But the foreman fight of Joe Frazier was one of those fights where Everyone who didn't really know boxing thought, well, Frazier's a champ, this will be an easy fight. Because Foreman wasn't really that well-known widely at that point. And Foreman just walked through him easily. Six knockdowns, two. And 
all three of these guys had the Trevised. All, all three of them had their problems later later on in the ring. And Foreman, you know, in his first incarnation, won the title, lost it, and then won it again. He became friends with Joe Frazier. He always liked Joe Frazier. Foreman always says, if Frazier had only looked down during the ring stare, during the referee's instructions, he would have seen my knee shaking. But when I watched this fight yesterday, they had a long shot view. Foreman's knees weren't shaking. If he was nervous or scared, he certainly didn't show it. And when Foreman won the title, they thought, well, he's going to hold the title for the next 10, 15 years. No one will beat him. But man, I should do it. And if you think about it, it's ironic that from 1964 to 1974, Frazier, Foreman, and Ali owned the World Heavyweight title. And Ali held it to 1980. Between 16 years, the heavyweight title of the world was really pretty of just three men. Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, and George Foreman. And they ushered in the huge big money era in sports. And Foreman's the last one standing, and he's still a tremendous draw. As I said, I said to him once, it's almost like you died and came back as Muhammad Ali because he, he, he just is an incredible person, very friendly, very funny, very kind, very generous. One of the all-time greats. And I would say those 16 years, 64 to 1980, are the 16 greatest years ever of the heavyweight division because of those three dominant champions. And I think in the entire history of the sport, you can only put Joe Lewis in there with them and, and Larry Holmes. I don't think anyone else would go in into that particular category. So January 22nd, 1973, second round knockout, George Foreman annihilates. Joe Frazier and becomes the new undisputed, unbelievable world heavyweight champion. Happy Canada Day weekend. I'm Lou Eisen, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ring Talk, and we will see you next week.